want you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 8. We'll be finishing up chapter 8. We broke it down into three passages or three sections because of the length of the passage. We're going to finish up chapter 8 this morning. How many of you know what a benediction is? A couple of hands. A benediction is a blessing, a bestowing of a blessing on someone. It's generally done um, in our services, if you will, at the end of a service or a ceremony. In fact, there was a church that I went to when I first started attending seminary. There was a church I went to before I started pastoring. And they would always end the service with these words. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. That's actually from Numbers chapter 6. But that was their way of bestowing a blessing on us. We knew that was the end of the service and it was the pastor's way of sending us out with the Lord's blessings. Well, Solomon does something very similar today. If you remember, chapter 8 describes this massive ceremony and celebration as they dedicated the temple. And so... After the move, or after moving the Ark of the Covenant into the Holy of Holies and putting the altar there, the Lord comes down onto the temple and you see this cloud. He fills the temple so much so that the priests have to leave the temple. They can no longer enter it. There are trumpets, 120 trumpet players. There's choirs singing. It's a massive celebration. And after that, then Solomon prays. We went through that last week. We saw this incredible prayer that was filled with scripture references or at least formed and shaped by scripture. And then when he gets done with that, he turns and looks at Israel and he offers a benediction and that's where we're at today. And there's three parts to this benediction. The first is he reminds them again of the Lord's faithfulness. And we've talked about that over and over and over again, how frequent that concept of God's faithfulness shows up in 1 Kings. So he begins with that. Then he actually blesses Israel, and there's three desires that he has as he blesses Israel. So we'll spend the majority of our time in that. And then he concludes with a peace offering at the very end. So that's our outline for this morning. So we're going to go ahead and first look at the first few verses here, verses 54 through 56. We're in 1 Kings chapter 8, starting at verse 54. Let's just read those. When Solomon had finished praying this entire prayer and supplication to the Lord, he rose... From before the altar of the Lord, from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread toward the heavens, and he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice, saying, Blessed be the Lord, who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he has promised. Not one word has failed all his good promises, which he promised through Moses his servant. So Solomon begins his benediction with a reminder of the faithfulness of the Lord. What he says here is that God has finally given them rest, given them peace in the land. Nearly 500 years earlier, the Lord promised Israel through Moses that he would settle them in the land, he would give them rest for their enemies, and then he would ultimately put his name on the place where he wants his name. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 12, if you would. Deuteronomy chapter 12. When you cross the Jordan and live in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and he gives you rest from all of your enemies around you, so that you live in security, 
Then it shall come about that the place in which the Lord your God will choose for his name to dwell, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and your contribution of your hand, and all of your choice votive offerings which you will vow to the Lord. And so that's the promise made by the Lord that he would bring them into the land, give them rest, and then they would bring all of their offerings. Now elsewhere in that passage he mentions putting his name on a place, and you get the first hintings of a temple, if you will. So he accomplished the first part of the promise that we see here from Deuteronomy chapter 12 with the conquest. Remember when Joshua brought them into the land. That was the first part of that. But they really hadn't experienced peace until we get to David's reign. And that's when the Lord fulfilled the second part of his promise, providing peace to Israel from all of their enemies. And then ultimately, the promise of placing his name in a place we know it to be Jerusalem, building his temple there, we see that ultimately fulfilled in Solomon. So Israel was finally living at rest. They're living in the land with prosperity, just as the Lord had promised. In fact, if you jump back to 1 Kings chapter 4, this was a time of incredible prosperity for Israel. Chapter 4, verse 20. Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. They were eating and drinking and rejoicing. Now Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed oxen, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fat and fowl. For he had dominion over everything west of the river from Tishbah to even to Gaza over the kings west of the river, and he had peace on all sides around him. So Judah and Israel lived in safety, every man under his vine and his fig tree, from Dan even to Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that this particular time in Israel was Israel's glory years. They've never lived in the kind of peace and security and prosperity that they lived at at this time. There's been glimpses of that. There's been times where through the divided kingdom they would have good times and bad times and then they would have really bad times and be taken off into captivity and then they ultimately were brought back, had some safety and security to some degree, but they've never experienced anything like the time that they were experiencing in Israel. And so Solomon says, not one word has failed all the good promises which he, God, promised through Moses, his servant. And so the first thing that Solomon does as he turns around and looks at Israel is he tells them, the Lord is faithful. He's fulfilled every one of his promises. Now remember last week when I had mentioned that throughout his prayer, you could see it sort of dripping with scripture. And we cited some of those passages, Deuteronomy chapter 7. 28, 30, Leviticus 26. If you go and you read those passages, you see that Solomon's prayer had been shaped by what he found in those passages. It was what was on his mind. And here we see something very, very similar. In fact, what he says here, and just those words, words we read, come right out of Joshua chapter 21 and 23. I want you to turn to Joshua 21 with me. Joshua chapter 21, I'm going to jump down into verse 43. So the Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they possessed it and lived in it. And the Lord gave them rest on every side according to all that he had sworn to their fathers, and no one of all their enemies stood before them. 
The Lord gave them all their enemies into their hands. Not one of the good promises which the Lord God had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. Now jump down to chapter, um, I think it's 23, if I remember right. Yeah, chapter 23. Jump down to 23 verse 14. Joshua's words to Israel, Now I am going the way of all the earth, and you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one word of all the good words which the Lord your God has spoken concerning you has failed. All have been fulfilled for you. Not one of them has failed. Does that sound an awful lot like what Solomon has just said to Israel? It shall come about that just as the good works, words which the Lord your God spoke to you have come upon you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the threats until he has destroyed you from off this good land which the Lord your God has given you when you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God which he commanded you and go and serve other gods and bow down to them when the anger of the Lord will burn against you and you will perish quickly from off the good land which he has given you. Now, you see in Joshua there, he basically says, Look, remember, God has given you everything he's promised. But he's also promised curses if you turn your back on him. And Solomon reflected that last week, and he also is going to reflect it to some degree this week as he challenges Israel to remain faithful to the Lord. And so we can see that one of the signs of Solomon's wisdom at this point was that his words, his prayers, and even his benediction here were shaped and filled with the Word of God. That's true wisdom, is it not? And so we see that here as he's reminding Israel that the Lord once again is faithful to everything that he said. Especially at this time. Each, you know, when Joshua entered the land, they hadn't lived in prosperity yet. They hadn't seen God put his name on any place, but he had fulfilled what he had promised up to that point, which was to bring them into the land and to give them some semblance of safety. In fact, they didn't start to experience um, their enemies until they began to reject him. And you see that in the book of Judges and this spiral that they went through. But for now, they're living in this tremendous period of peace and Solomon reminds them of the faithfulness of the Lord. I think there's a couple of takeaways for us with this. Um, the first one is that we've seen multiple times in First Kings here this concept of God's faithfulness, that he always fulfills his promises. And, you know, at the risk of beating a dead horse, again, it's a theme that repeatedly shows up here. God is faithful. And if he's faithful to Israel, then he's faithful to us. Remember, we were told that we were given the Old Testament to be a tutor to lead us to Christ. It's what teaches us about who God is. And one of the themes that is repeated over and over in the Old Testament is God is faithful. Why is that so important? Well, we love the Lord, and we trust that he will be faithful to us as well. Our whole entire hope of salvation, the hope of eternal life, rests in one thing. God's promise. We have no hope if we can't trust the Lord. Right? And so the first takeaway for us with this, again, is just to be reminded of God's faithfulness. We can trust Him. He'll do what He says. I think about that in light of what happened this last Tuesday. You know, there were many of us that really thought that there was going to be at least a, a high red tide, maybe not the tsunami that they predicted, but we really thought maybe Americans were smart enough to realize that a lot of the stuff going on is not working. And what happened? You know, maybe a red ripple? You know? Um, and so there are many today that are, in some respects, in despair. But the Lord is faithful. Amen. Right? The Lord is faithful. 
We don't put our hope in politics or hope in men. Yes, I absolutely would have loved to have seen a red wave. But even with that, I've been around long enough to know that sometimes the red can be just as bad as the blue. You know? And so the Lord is faithful. And we need to remember that. This hasn't altered his plan. In fact, it hasn't altered his plan for the United States, whether we like it or not. We just don't know what that plan ultimately was going to be. But he is faithful. And so that's the first takeaway for us in this. The second is that like Solomon, when we pray or think, shouldn't what we pray and think and speak be shaped by the scriptures? I shared the example last week of my mentor, my pastor, who whenever I would be in his office and would ask him questions, he would refuse to answer me without scripture verses, scripture passages. It was something that was just, it was a part of who he was. In fact, um, I mentioned I shared um, the letter that he sent to me just recently with, with a couple of you guys. And would you agree that like almost every sentence was a scripture reference and a verse, you know? That's not what we see here in Solomon as he prayed and as he you know, offers this blessing among him. He's reflecting on the scriptures. Um, that's the way it should be for us as Christians. You know, far too often professing Christians um, are influenced by secular forces and you hear what's coming out of their mouths is more shaped by secular thinking than scriptural thinking. Um, it was really kind of interesting. I was... We're filling out an application for Kimberly for um, the Ark Encounter. They do this. They put this internship program down at the Ark Encounter in, in Creation Museum. And um, they've built housing down there and everything to, for the interns and for summer help and all that. And so she was applying to maybe see if she can get internship down there in hospitality management. And so they, they had some questions at the very end, you know. And one of them, obviously, is how old do you think the earth is? And the first thing out of Kimberly's mouth was six to 10,000 years, maybe. And um, we got down to the question about salvation, and she just, you know what, hey, you've got to know that Jesus Christ, you know, is who he says he is. You've got to believe that I'm a sinner, and that I need a Savior, and that if you want salvation, you need Christ. And it was interesting, because I didn't have to help her with any of it. <laughs> Which, the rest of it, I kind of had to help her out with some stuff. You know, she's like, I don't know how to answer this question, but it was all things about, you know, her experience and everything else. But when it got to that section about what she believes theologically... And she had it nailed down. And I don't say that to, to lift her up, but just simply, man, I sat back and I kind of thought, yeah. She's answered these with what she's learned from the scriptures and what she's been taught. And that's what we ought to be doing. I mean, I think about Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 says this, let the, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you and with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to the Lord. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. You can tell what's in a person's heart by what comes out of their mouth. And when what you hear is more secular than scriptural, you know what richly dwells within their heart. And so Solomon here, at least at this point in his life, it appears that he understood the Old Testament scriptures and he prayed from them, he blessed from them. And that's important. I think it's a good lesson for us as well. It should definitely be the same for us. Let's move on to the second part. And this is where Solomon now actually blesses Israel. And there's three things or three desires that he has when he blesses them. The first desire was for the Lord's presence to remain 
among Israel. Look at verses 57 and 58. May the Lord your God be with us, or may the Lord our God be with us, as he has been with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to himself to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his ordinances which he commanded our fathers. As Solomon reflected on the promise now that the temple was complete, he no doubt was keenly aware of Israel's past struggles with sin. He's got a whole entire book and judges dedicated to that. They would struggle with idolatry. They would struggle with faithfulness. God would always have to rescue them, change their hearts, lead them through repentance. Um, we saw how Solomon prayed. If you remember, when he prayed, I, I'm not going to read back through these verses, but verses 31 through 53 if you notice, almost everything he prays is about when they sin, when they do this, and when they confess, then forgive them, Lord. Bring them back. Solomon was keenly aware of their habit to sin. And so as he blesses them here, he knows that in that sin, the Lord will have to chastise them, rebuke them, But he prays that the Lord would not forsake them, but he ties it directly to that he may incline our hearts to himself to walk in his ways. Haven't we heard that once before? Do you remember when when the Lord offered Solomon? And after Solomon had done the sacrifices at Gibeon, the Lord comes to him and offers him basically, what do you want? I'll do it for you. And so Solomon, you know, thinks about it for a moment, and what he asks for is not success over his enemies, He doesn't ask for riches or wealth. What he asks for is a listening heart, which is a heart that's inclined to obedience. Because remember the word for listen there, obey, they're the same. To hear and obey, it's the same concept. And so Solomon says, give me a heart that listens. And then he says, so that I might be able to discern good and evil and judge this people. And the Lord is thrilled with that. And so we heard Solomon say, what I need is a heart that's inclined to obey. And likely that was informed by the fact that the Lord had told Solomon on multiple occasions, you need to walk in my statutes, you need to walk in my ways. And if you do that, he even promised him long life. even told him, I'll give you riches and things you didn't ask for. But it was always prefaced on the basis that you will walk in obedience and walk in my ways. And so Solomon, one of, the things that he, one of the things that he desires as he blesses Israel here is that they too would always know the Lord's presence in their lives in Israel, but he ties it to the fact that God would need to incline their hearts toward him to walk in obedience and to walk in his statutes. So again, this is the second time we've seen that. What's the takeaway for us in that? I would argue this, that I think all of us desire the Lord's presence in our lives, don't we? But just like Israel, what we see of God in our lives is tied to our obedience. There are many Christians who think that just wearing that label, showing up for church on a Sunday morning, gives them an in. We're all good here. But they're still just as miserable and depressed as the world around them. Not experiencing the Lord's blessings in that. I can think of a group that Paul said that they were sinning, that God had to take their lives just to spare their soul. 
They weren't experiencing the Lord's blessings in this life because of their sin. I want you to turn to John chapter 15. Jesus makes this absolutely clear what his expectations are of those who say that they love him. John chapter 15 verse 4. He tells them in verse 3 they're already clean, meaning they're saved because of the Lord that he had, or the word he had spoken to them, the gospel. But then look at what he says. Abide in me, in verse 4, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. He's talking to people here who are saved. Clean people. He says, you, you can't bear any fruit unless you abide in me. Okay? So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned up. If you abide in me and my words, get that, and my words abide in you. Why does he throw that in? Because you cannot abide in Christ without obedience. You have to know his words and his words have to, as Paul says elsewhere, richly dwell within you, in this case, abide in you, Then he says, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. And so prove, he throws this in there, prove that you're my disciples. By what? Abiding in me and having my word abide in you. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. Notice what he says in verse 10 to cap this off then. If you keep my commandments... You will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. One of the things that I was so impressed with when I went through my counseling training at, um, what was at the time, Faith Baptist down at uh, West Lafayette, Indiana, was that all their counseling was prefaced on the condition that, you know what, you come to us because you're depressed, you're struggling, whether you want to call it mental illness, whether you want to call it just anything. You're here because life's not what you expect it to be. And they always addressed it from the standpoint of, when you align yourself with the commands of the Lord, when you align yourself with, first off, a salvation in Christ, but then obedience to Christ, then you will experience the joy the peace and the pleasure of the Lord. Plain and simple. And so there was always scripture involved with the counseling. There was always homework because they were expected to do it. And what would happen is that when, when we would see somebody one week and then give them assignments to do, which usually involved things like looking at scripture, specifically addressing the issues that they were facing, and we would give them homework to do, they would come back and they hadn't done the homework, we would say, well, then there's no further we can go. Because if you're not going to learn what the Lord says, and you're not going to put it into practice and obey it, then you're wasting your time here with us because we can't fix what's broken. And that's the way life is. You know, the Bible tells us the way of the wicked is what? Difficult. When you don't abide in the Lord's commands, you don't experience the Lord's blessings. They go hand in hand. And Solomon reminds Israel of this, that... You know, he wants the Lord to remain with them. But he knows that the only way they will really genuinely experience the Lord's presence is if their hearts are inclined to obey him, to walk in faithfulness to him. And so Jesus tells us the same thing. If you look at 
what Solomon says here as well in verses 18, or I'm sorry, in, in um, verses 59 and 60, we got his second desire, if you will. And that's that he wanted the Lord to vindicate Israel whenever the need would arise. It's an interesting word, but we'll get to that in a second. Look at verses 59 through 60. And may these words of mine, which I have made supplication before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, that he may maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel, each or as each day requires, so that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God, there is no one else. So Solomon has referred to the Lord maintaining the cause of Israel three different times in this chapter. In fact, if you go back to verses 44 through 49, when your people go out to battle against their enemies by whatever way you shall send them and they pray to the Lord toward the city which you have chosen and the house which you have built for their name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. When they sin against you, for there is no man who does not sin, and you are angry with them and deliver them to an enemy so that they take them away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near, if they take thought in the land where they have been taken captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land of those who were taken captive, saying, We have sinned and have continued, or committed iniquity. We have acted wickedly. If they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who have taken them captive and pray to you toward the land which you have given to their fathers, the city which you have chosen and the house which I have built for their name, then hear their prayer and supplication in heaven, your dwelling place, and maintain their cause. The New English translation, the NET, translates this or renders this using the word vindication. Instead of simply saying maintain their cause, the idea of vindication. To vindicate somebody means to prove that they were right. In essence, what Solomon is doing is when Israel sins against you, and then they recognize their sin, and they they confess that sin, and they, they desire to return to you, they pray to you, then vindicate that. Take them back and vindicate that decision that they've made. Show them to be right. Why is that important? If you think about it, we, every human being on this planet is a sinner, right? And when we cry out to the Lord, and we recognize that we are a sinner and we repent, and the Lord offers forgiveness and takes us back, that is a vindication of our faith in Christ. It proves that we are placing our faith in Christ is the right thing. And so he basically is looking at Israel here and he's, his desire is that the Lord will vindicate them when they sin and when they return to him. Many of you might not know the name John Paul Mac Isaac. A couple of you might. Anybody know that name? Dustin's kind of smirking. I don't know if he remembers that, but... John Paul Mac Isaac was the computer repair shop owner where Hunter Biden dropped off his laptop. And if you remember, he actually contacted the FBI because he recognized, I mean, he signed it, Hunter Biden, on the checkout slip. But as he was looking at this thing, what, a year goes by and Hunter Biden never comes back to pick it up. And as he's looking at it, there's some stuff on this laptop. Not good stuff. So he contacts the FBI, who initially has no interest in it. But finally, 
They come pick it up. He makes copies of it because he knows something's not right. And remember how the news media, when this stuff kind of broke, news media repeatedly called it fake information, Russian disinformation. But not only that, they slammed this guy. He was making it up, you know. There's something wrong. He was an agent of Russians. And the guy ended up ultimately losing his business. Shut down. And time and time and time after again, this guy faced death threats. He had people threaten his life. He lost his shop. He's facing bankruptcy. But what's happened just recently? Those very same media that were calling this disinformation and everything else finally had to admit, reluctantly, ever so reluctantly, that this was Hunter Biden's laptop. That it wasn't Russian disinformation. That this guy didn't make it up. So in some respects, while he may still, you know, he still lost his business, threats against his life, and he was vindicated to some degree. Not nearly enough. He ought to sue the news media that continually threatened him and destroyed his life. But the reality of it is, there has been a form of vindication. He has been shown to have been right in what he said. That's vindication. And that's in essence what Solomon is asking the Lord here to do, is to vindicate himself and Israel. And notice why he says he wants the Lord to do this. And may these words of mine which I have made supplication, verse 59, before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, that he may maintain the cause of his servant, he may vindicate his servant and his people, as each day requires. Why? So that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God, there is no one else. In other words, it wasn't for Israel's sake that Solomon wanted vindication, but for the Lord's sake, that all the world would know that the Lord is God, that the Lord is one. What's our takeaway from that? How many of you, like me, want vindication? Think about that for a minute. Don't we long for the Lord to prove that we're right in placing our faith in Jesus Christ? That when we stand up and speak on moral issues or spiritual issues or anything else, that what we're saying is right and true? In some respects, some of us were hoping we might see a little reflection of that in this last election, that maybe some people would say, hey, you know, hmm, what conservatives have been saying all along has been right. Don't we all just long for some form of vindication to be shown to be right? Maybe you don't. I do. But not necessarily for my own sake. I just get tired of always being told I'm wrong. Don't we all want vindication, especially when it comes to what we believe about Jesus Christ? I mean, we're living in a a world here where fewer and fewer and fewer people believe that the Bible is the Word of God, even within the evangelical church. You know? I sent an article out to Dustin and Matt just from, I'll call it a Christian organization, Reasons to Believe, Hugh Ross. It's an old earth ministry and I think the article was on you know, whether or not Adam and Eve were real and to see the gymnastics that they had to kind of jump through and ultimately in the end they destroy the authority of the scripture. It's like if you don't believe it, just say you don't believe it. I think it was Matt that said that. If you don't believe it, just say you don't believe it. You know? Um... I desire to be vindicated personally, folks. 
Now, do I live my life waiting for that? No, but I think deep down, I cannot wait for the day where we are standing before Christ and our faith is vindicated. Think about this. Every time we lead somebody to Christ, the person accepts Christ, we are vindicated. We've got an individual there that now recognizes the truth of the gospel and it's been proven, right? Every time we preach the word of God and we see its impact on people's lives, every time you share the good news of somebody or sometimes you offer somebody hope from the scriptures or you counsel somebody and you see how that works in their lives, aren't we not vindicated there as well? Every time we're persecuted because of what we believe in Jesus Christ, we may not feel like it, but we're vindicated because we share in Christ's sufferings. In and of itself is a form of vindication because the Lord said it would happen. Our ultimate vindication, however, comes when Jesus Christ will return and we stand before him because he tells us that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So the ultimate vindication will come. And again, not for us because it isn't about us. It's that every knee would bow before him and every tongue would confess him. And in many respects, that's what we see in Solomon here. He says, Lord, vindicate yourself, vindicate Israel so that all the world will know that you're God. And so we really don't seek vindication for our own benefit, do we? As much as we want it. I've admitted that to you about myself. But what we ultimately want is for people to see God for who he, who he is. Third desire that we see in Solomon's benediction here is that Israel's heart would remain completely devoted to the Lord. Look at verse 61. Let your heart therefore be wholly devoted to the Lord our God, to walk in his statutes and to keep his commandments as at this day. So his third desire is that Israel would remain wholly devoted devoted to the Lord. As I mentioned, they've been experiencing a tremendous amount of peace. In fact, the fact that he uses this phrase, as at this day, suggests, indicates, that Israel was wholly devoted to the Lord at this point. That's another reason why when we go back and we see earlier when when it says that Israel is still sacrificing at the high places, one of the reasons I interpret that as not idol worship at the high places, but rather regional uh, regional places within Israel where they were worshiping the Lord, and they did it on on high places. Um, In fact, Gibeon was that way. We saw Samuel actually went to a high place and, and offered up sacrifices to the Lord. One of the reasons I interpret that not as idolatry, but rather genuine worship of the Lord, is because of a statement like this. Because at this point, as at this day, you're faithful. You're wholly devoted to the Lord. And historically, what we know about this is that most scholars believe that there was very little, if any, idolatry in Israel during David's reign in the first probably 10 years or so, of so- or first uh, 30 years of Solomon's reign. And we've... We look at that not just from writings in the scriptures, but also um, archaeological stuff. When we do archaeological digs, what we can find and we can tell what period of time we're excavating in Israel and other places based on layers of soil and other things. And there's just not a whole lot of evidence that there was idolatry going on in Israel at this time, at least not on any kind of whole scale. And so Solomon says, stay this way, stay faithful to the Lord, stay wholly devoted just as you are today. And so it appears that they were faithful and he calls on them to remain that way. 
to remain wholly devoted to the Lord. What's the takeaway for us with that? You know, the Lord has always expected wholehearted devotion to Him. Hasn't He? It's always been that way. Whether it was Adam and Eve in the garden, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and David, all the way down the line, the Lord has always, I would say, even demanded wholehearted devotion. When He gave the Ten Commandments to Israel, He began with this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and with all of your might. That's how he began it. It wasn't about the 630 plus commandments. It wasn't just check these all off. It was love me with your whole heart, soul, and mind. When the Lord finished giving the ten, or the, um, all of the law, he followed it up with, this isn't too difficult to do. If you remember to love me with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. When Jesus was asked by the Pharisee, about the greatest commandment, you remember what he responded with, right? You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. Because that's what God has always asked. The Bible is also pretty clear about how we demonstrate that wholehearted devotion. I'll turn to a few passages here. Turn to John chapter 14 again. John chapter 14. John chapter 14, remember verse 15, what Jesus said, If you love me, what? You will keep my commandments. Jump down to verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one, what? Who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. So who is the one who loves Jesus? Who is the one who loves the Father? The one who keeps his commandments. Turn to First John. First John has an awful lot to say about this. First John chapter 2, look at verse, verses 3 through 6. By this we know that we have come to know him. How? If we keep his commandments. So how do we know we know Jesus? Keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments, he's a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. Think about that for a second. The one who keeps his word, if you keep the Lord's word, then what does it say about the love of God? It's been perfected in you. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself, what? To walk in the same manner as he walked. Jump down to verse 24 of chapter 3. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him. And he in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given. How do we know that the Spirit is dwelling within? How do we know that we're abiding in him? Keeping his commandments. That's how we know. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe what? His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. Why are they not burdensome? Because when you do them out of love, it's not a chore. It's only a chore when you're not doing it out of love, when you're doing it out of obligation. 
You know, I grew up in the Catholic Church, and I was never really taught that I was to love the Lord. I'm not saying they disregarded that, but I, I, I would think I was taught more about the need for communion and catechism. And in Catholic theology, that's the way you receive God's grace. It wasn't until somebody sat me down at college that basically said, no, it's not about that. It's about loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. When you do that, then you'll desire those things. I remember Bob telling me that, I told him, I don't like going to church. I would go to the ecumenical center, which is a Catholic kind of a thing down at the campus, and I would go, and I just didn't enjoy the service, you know, it's... 45-minute rites and rituals that we went through, you know. I'm glad my parents took me to church. I mean, even though it was Catholic, I, I'm glad they did. I got a great foundation there. I knew who God was and who Christ was. I just didn't understand the need for personal relationship. But I really began to enjoy going to church once I fell in love with Christ. And so he says here, it's not burdensome. Why? Because it's done out of love. Verse 4. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So basically, the scriptures are filled with a very simple charge. Let's remain wholly devoted to the Lord. And how do we do that? Love Him with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so Solomon, jump back into 1 Kings chapter 8 there. Solomon says, Let your heart therefore be wholly devoted to the Lord to walk in his statutes and keep his commandments at this day. You cannot love the Lord if you don't love his commandments and walk in them. You know, We see people who claim to be Christian or claim to love the Lord or claim to be people of faith, but they reject the Lord's commands. What do we know about them? John says they're a liar. How many of our politicians have we been told recently? How many of them have invoked citing scripture recently? I can rattle off a handful of them. They don't love the Lord. They're not in Him. How do I know that? Because while they may quote the Scripture, while they may say they're A, B, or C in terms of their religious affiliation, whether they try to talk about the Lord when they reject His commandments, I know they're a liar. It's not me saying that. It's a Scripture. But the challenge for us is while we might like to stand up on our own or sit up on our own high horse... We love the Lord. If we're not walking in His commandments, then we're not wholly devoted to Him. It's that simple. The last thing Solomon does here is he concludes the temple dedication with a peace offering. Just read through those verses with me. Now the king with all of Israel with him offered sacrifice before the Lord. Solomon offered for the sacrifice of peace offerings which he offered to the Lord 22,000 oxen, 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the sons of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. On the same day the king consecrated the middle of the court that was before the house of the Lord because there he offered the burnt offerings and the grain offerings and the fat and the peace offerings for the bronze altar that was before the Lord was too small to hold the offerings and the grain offering and the fat of the peace offerings. So Solomon offered the feast at that time with all of Israel with them, a great assembly from the entrance of the Harmath to the brook brook of Egypt before the Lord our God for seven days and seven more days, even 14 days. He had extended the the one-week feast into two weeks. On the eighth day, he sent the people away. This is the eighth day after the second week. Sent them away and blessed the king. Then they went to their tents, joyful, glad of heart for all the goodness that the Lord had shown to David his servant and to his people Israel. 
What an amazing time this must have been for Israel. They see the completion of the Lord's promises, if you will, where he had told them 500 years earlier, I'm going to take you into the land, I'm going to give you peace from your enemies, I'll give you prosperity, I'll put my name on a place, and ultimately people will come and worship there, and they will know the Lord because of that place. And so what we see here in this chapter 8 is a culmination of all of that, and Solomon takes advantage of that by praying to the Lord, as we saw last week, and reminding the Lord to be faithful to his covenant to Israel, to remember that they would sin, but that when they would sin and call back on his name, he beseeched the Lord to forgive them, to bring them back to a place of prosperity. But it doesn't just end there, because Solomon then turns to the people like we see today, and he does just what we saw here, where he calls on the Lord to not forsake them. He calls on Israel to remain wholly devoted to him. He's reminded of the promises that were made, but also the requirements that were expected, which is to walk in the Lord's ways. Now, unfortunately, we're going to see that as we get to chapter 11, tragically, Solomon forgot that at the end of his life. At this point, he appears to be okay. These words appear to be sincere. But again, the challenge for us is our faith isn't all that different than what we see here in the Old Testament, is it? The Lord still expects us to love him with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. He still promises us things that we know he will fulfill. But he also expects us to continue walking in obedience. And we can't forget that. Unfortunately, we live in a culture and a society, even within the evangelical church today, where faith is simple and easy. It's sort of, say, a magic prayer, and you're all good to go. There's no expectation of change. There's no expectation of understanding doctrine or you know, getting into the word of God and filling your mind and soul and spirit with it. But that's what the Lord calls of us. So again, our faith isn't much different than Israel's and what the Lord expected of them. So it's a great tutor for us. So may we ultimately find ourselves in the same place that Israel did, being called on to remain wholly devoted and faithful to the Lord by walking in his commandments. Amen?